In all these compounds, the word Tat stands for Brahma. So, Jnana, Tadagnanam, Yesham, Nashita, Matmanaha. Those with ignorance have been destroyed by knowledge. What happens to them? Tad buddhaya. Buddhi, their knowledge also is always of Brahman. That means that they abide in the knowledge of Brahman. Tadatmanaha, they know Brahman as their very own self. So they abide in the knowledge, not only that, but abide in the knowledge of Brahman as their own self. Tadnishthaha, the nishtha or commitment also is to Brahman, not to any other goal of life. Tadparayanaha, that Tat or Brahman alone is our param ayaram, that's ultimate end that they are seeking and that's the ultimate end that they will reach. Jnana nirdhuta kalmashaha on account of this knowledge that I am Brahma, everything is Brahma. And Brahman itself is said is ever pure on account of this knowledge that Jnana nirdhuta kalmashaha whatever kalmashaha, whatever impurities are there in the mind all of these impurities have been removed, have been destroyed. So by the thinking of a pure thing, the impurity that also gets removed. That is also the reason why they tell us to keep repeating name of God. In as much as God is pavitranam pavitraha, He is purer than the purest. And therefore even by repeating His name, in some ways thinking about Him. Thus when my mind in some ways contacts Him even through the name, and that name invokes a certain kind of a feeling in me, that also is purifying. Then what to talk of these people who abide in the knowledge of Brahman is a very self and it's effortless knowledge. See, knowledge of self is always effortless. Every other knowledge requires some kind of an effort. That is, if I want to see something, hear something, touch something, taste something, it is going to require my operati- operating this re- respective organ of perception. That means that I must bring my eyes into operation, then I can see the color. 
or my ears into operation, then I can hear things. But no such thing is required in order for me to know the self, to be what I am, that I am, or that I exist, or that I am conscious, that does not require any effort at all. It is effortless because it is self-effulgent. If Brahman was known as something other than me, then that knowledge would always require some effort that if it is different from me, then there must be some instrument of knowledge, some medium through which Brahman is known. Just as whatever is known, whatever it is that is different from me and that is known, it always involves some medium of knowledge or instrument of knowledge or means of knowledge, organs of perception, mind, etc. Similarly also, if Brahman were different from me, then in knowing Brahman, some means of knowledge would have been involved, like my mind or like something would have been involved. In that case, it would be difficult to be always abiding in that. See, you cannot, if it requires an effort, for example, I cannot see all the time, cannot hear all the time, cannot do something all the time because doing involves an effort and effort cannot be done all the time. I can abide in something only when it is effortless. That means the wise people can abide in Brahman only when that abidance means effortless. And only one thing in which I can abide in effortlessly and that is my own self for the simple reason that it does not require any effort on my part to abide in myself because self is self-effulgent. And therefore only when one knows Brahman as self, then alone one can abide in knowledge of Brahman. <coughs> Suttanishthaha tatprayanaha so this is their paramagati, that's the ultimate end. And their purport or the only commitment in life also is Brahman. The goal in life also is Brahman. The knowledge also is Brahman. And Brahman is known as the very self. These are the natural traits of course of the wise people. But the reason why these traits are described is so that they become the sadhanam, the means for a seeker. What it means that parayanam, that paramayanam, the ultimate goal of my life also should be Brahman. If I want to be wise, then nishtaha, the commitment in my life also should be Brahman. Tadatmanaha, that always I should seek to know Brahman is myself and not as different from me. Tad buddhaya, that my buddhi or the knowledge also should be for Brahman. So that means when it pervades in every aspect of my life, then ultimately I abide in the knowledge. So, they are in every way non-different from Brahman. <coughs> because everything is Brahman. It's not that this something has happened. It is a matter of knowledge. All that is gone is merely ignorance. And when we say ignorance, we mean the various notions and complexes born of ignorance. They are gone. Dhyana nirdhuta kalmasaha. So what you call kalmasha or sin, if you want to use the word, or impurity. Impurity is nothing but some kind of a superimposition that takes place upon the Atma, I keep on accusing myself of being a doer and enjoyer and good and bad and this and that and so that itself is impurity. And so he no more superimposes anything upon himself or upon anything. So that is how the impurity is gone. Naturally, in light of when I know something, then the delusion about that goes away. So whatever delusion the person entertain about himself, they are gone. Whatever delusions you entertain about the world, they are gone, totally free from delusion. So that's all the knowledge does, is to remove ignorance, which means the delusions born out of ignorance. And they alone are, as we have been saying all the time, it is those delusions about myself, about world, about God, which are the cause of all our suffering, and 
once these delusions are gone, I mean that is that is what we mean by abiding in the knowledge. That's what we mean by a wise man being perfect, not perfect in terms of his uh, upadhi, but in terms of enjoying that perfection, <coughs> enjoying the total freedom. And also in the 18th verse, Lord Krishna said, how do they relate to the world? Vidyavine sampanne brahmane gavihastini shunicheva svapakecha. So Lord Krishna gives a few examples, as may be obtaining, you know, at that time or what may obtain in India. Like you may come across a brahmana who is very learned and pure and uh, having humility and that represents sattva, sattvic. Cows are also always there in India, you know. These days you find them in the streets also. Perhaps those days they were not in the streets. But then in an agricultural society, the cow is, you know, is there in every way it's involved in your life. Elephant, I guess, you know, also now and then. Elephants used to be in the temples. Suni in the dogs, always lots of stray dogs are there. Swapakecha, and as you said, even the outcasts, all of these. So this, as we say, represents the total spectrum of the, the living beings that you come across, beginning from the most exalted to the most uh, miserable or the most wretched. Whereas ordinary people will treat them or look upon them differently. And so when, see, when we come across people, who do not follow the values that we follow, generally we have an aversion for them, we look down upon them. Look at this fellow, yes, Swamiji, he is telling lies, Let's see how he talks, see? And thus, so we have, we look upon, look down upon them. Somebody who is uh, very learned and very pious, we look up to him. And thus the way we look at different people and different beings is different, depending upon how they, how they are. As far as this person is concerned, it doesn't matter how they appear, because they realize that all these differences of sattva, rajas and tamas, all of them obtain at the level of personality and the person, the self, is ever pure, samudarshinaha, and therefore they look all upon them as equal. Or they know all of them as equal. Not look even, but they know all of them as one. It's only one Brahman alone that comes in different costumes. That alone wears the sattvic costume and appears as a learned Brahmana. That alone wears what we call other costume appears as a cow or an elephant or a dog or outcast, whatever it is. It is one truth, one Brahman alone manifesting in all these different costumes. Like one water appearing in different kinds of waves or one gold appearing in different kinds of ornaments. Similarly, one truth, Brahman alone appearing in all these different costumes. Therefore, he does not get deluded by the costume, does not get deluded by the wrapper. Regardless of what the rappers are, he appreciates the content is the same. Knowing fully well, the rapper does not in any way affect the content. Similarly also the personality, in no way affects the person, no way affects the Atma or the Self. Therefore, Samadarshinaha, they he look at all of them as equal, equal to themselves. Not that they are all equal, in fact they are all equal to me. That means whatever respect and love I have for myself, the same respect and love they have for everyone. In the sixth chapter, Lord Krishna says, Atma Upamyena Sarvatra Samam Pashyati Arjuna Sukham Vaidiva Dukham Sayogi Paramo Mataha Who is Paramo Yogi? Who is most exalted Yogi? Atma Upamyena Sarvatra Samam Pashyati The one who sees everything equal by placing himself, placing his own self as a comparison. That is, whenever he relates to anybody, he always places his own self as a comparison, as a frame of reference. That means, 
how would I, how would I do or how would I feel if I were in that position? What would make me happy? I would always want to be happy. And I would expect others to make me happy. Similarly, the other person also would expect me to make them happy. How would I feel? How would I expect if I were in that position? And this is how they relate to other people. They relate to other people as though that he himself, he was relating to himself in a different form. Suppose I was in that form. But Swamiji, he is miserable, he is cruel, he is this. But suppose I was that. Suppose I was a cruel person, I was a wretched person, suppose. And I had done all kinds of miserable things too. How would I like to be, how would I expect to be treated? With all kindness. I would still be expect to be treated with kindness. And I would expect the world to understand me. They don't know what problems I have. They don't know what, where I'm coming from. They don't know why I behave the way I do. But he would expect all the kindness and compassion. And so, these wise people, the yogis, so they put themselves as the frame of reference for comparison. Samam Pashyati Yorjana Sukham Vayadivadukham What is it that give me, would give me my happiness? What it is that would give, make me unhappy? So what makes me happy would make other person also happy. What makes me unhappy would make the other person also unhappy. Thus placing oneself in that position. So there is a lot of Lord Krishna does talk about this. Sometimes I feel that Vedanta is all self-centered. Only talks about self, doesn't talk about anything else, doesn't talk about the society. What about this? But it does talk about it in this way. <coughs> and Lord Krishna is quite sure that when a person becomes pure, he cannot but love. I mean, you know, it's, it's not that you would even tell them. A person is good, that means the goodness will manifest itself. It's not that you have to enjoy that you have to be good. So what they say is do this so that you become good, then you do what, you will be, what is required to be done. So rather than asking them what to do, as far as their vivhar is concerned, are they ask them what to do with yourself. How to bring about a change in yourself, and then automatically that will bring about a change in the way you relate to the world. <coughs> that seems to be the, the, the Vedantic way of doing things, therefore we do not find specific, very clear references. Swami even, Vedanta doesn't talk about ser- service and compassion, and they don't talk about that. I said, that is something that, see, compassion is something you can't enjoy, you can't ask a person to be compassionate. It is something that has to happen. So you must love, or love others, love everybody. You can't demand that somebody should love, that love also has to happen. The idea is that the love and compassion, kindness, all of these things have to happen. I can't, I can't will to be that. All I can do is to create conditions in my mind so that these things happen. Even as Swami would say, meditation also is not something that you can do. It happens. All we can do is to create conditions so that the meditation happens. See, love also has to happen. All I can do is to create conditions within myself so that the love becomes manifest. And this is what they teach. How to create conditions within ourselves so that all the best qualities that are there, it's not that we have to, even we have to secure them, it is that they are our own nature and they automatically become manifest. And sometimes the question is asked, but when these wise people look upon everybody as equal, that means they will treat all of them equal. That means that they will violate the codes of conduct. There are certain codes of conduct as to how you should treat people. For example, let's say you are performing a big ceremony or ritual. You invited a number of priests, learned priests. 
But all of them are not equal in learning. Somebody is more learned, somebody is less more learned, somebody is less learned and so forth. When the wise people see all of them as equal, does it mean that they will treat them all as equal? Then that would be violating the code of conduct because the one who is most learned should be treated better. I mean he should be given more dakshina, more gift. One who is less deserving should be given less. This is what the general code of conduct is. That means that you have to treat them, respect them depending upon their qualifications. But then they see all of them as equal, that means that they will show the same kind of respect, that means the same, same kind of status they will be afforded, accorded. In that case, they are violating the code of conduct. So, uh, what happens to them? So, Lord Krishna somewhat addresses that in the 19th verse here. ईहैवतैर्जितस्सर्गः the second line says, Nirdosham Hisamam Brahman. Because Brahman being free from any defect, Nirdosham. Dosha, Dosha means blemish, defect. Nirdosha, free from blemish, free from defect. Innocent, ever pure. Nirdosham Hi Brahman. Brahman is ever pure, ever free from blemish, ever free from any defect. And Samam is always the same. These two are very important. It is free from defect, at the same time, always the same. Here, Lord Shiva, you know, as Lord Shiva is depicted in the Hindu mythology, is a very beautiful illustration of this. You see Lord Shiva in his meditation, very serene. If you look at his face, you can see the face very serene and a very gentle smile on his lips. So, the gentle smile on the lips also is an indication that his heart is full of joy. So, Lord Shiva, very serene, of the nature of happiness or joy, very pure, and also an embodiment of knowledge. So, all purity, serenity, knowledge, this is what Lord Shiva embodies. He's an embodiment of this. And still, how is Lord Shiva shown to me? Amazing things are there on his body. There are snakes on his body. So he wears ornaments of snakes and snakes are crawling on his body. Sometimes you even see Lord Shiva as wearing a garland of skulls. You see also the ash smeared on his body. And you know where the ash comes from? It comes from a, a cremation, a pyre, you know, a, a funeral pyre. From that the ash comes and then he is smeared on his body the most impure things. I mean, skull, very impure. And so also this ash coming from the funeral pile, very impure. That means generally, so this Hinduism is big on this touch, sparsha, etc., touch and so forth and so on, and they don't touch this. They won't even look at this. If you touch it, then you have to not only take bath, but do all kinds of things to become purified again. And somebody was telling me this, by the way, an interesting incident here, that some, uh, some Indian, must be a Brahmin, he went uh, to a 
I don't know, I guess a, a, a Taco Bell or something, you know, one of these shops. And he asked for a vegetarian taco, I guess, if you have such a thing as that. And they served him a meat taco. And then he came to know. He ate it, he came to know afterwards that, oh, and then he sued these people for some hundreds of thousands of dollars. Because what will it take now him for being, to purify himself? He says, in order for me to be purified, now I must go to India, I must undergo certain rites, I must go to the Ganges, I must take dips in there, and all kinds of things I will do, and they have all that cost that would incur. That's what he has sued them for. You know. The idea is that, uh, this is how it is. And so, uh, but then, Lord Shiva seems to be uh, coating on his body all these most impure things. And still, does he get impure? The point is that in spite of that, all of these become his ornaments, amazing things. The things that are otherwise despised. And then people always keep away from even snakes and things like that, you know. And so, but when they are in the body of Lord Shiva, all of them become ornaments. Do you know that Lord Shiva has poison in his neck? Because he drank that poison. When they were churning the milky ocean, on one side, you know how the milky ocean was churned. How can you churn the ocean? So they needed a, a churning rod. So they brought a mountain in the place of a churning rod. Mount Meru, the tallest mountain was brought as a churning rod. As soon as they placed the mountain the, the, on the, uh, you know, uh, in the ocean, it started sinking. Therefore, Lord Vishnu himself became a tortoise and supported that mountain on his back. Now you require a big rope to churn this mountain. So they had a big snake, the name was Vasuki, and they, they brought him, they in fact commissioned him to become the, the rope. Now how many people will require to churn? Huge amount of, huge force is required, power is required. So on one side were all the gods, other side were all the demons. They started churning. You know why they wanted to churn there? Because they wanted ambrosia. Why ambrosia? Because if you have, if you partake of ambrosia, you become immortal. And so it is these gods who wanted to become immortal. Because they were driven away from the heavens by the demons. Very often these, the battles go on. And sometimes the gods win, very often demons win. And they, they drive these gods away from there. They were in exile and they didn't know what to do. So they thought it's a good idea that if you get the ambrosia and you partake of ambrosia, we become immortal. Then we can never be defeated by demons. But they themselves did not have the power to churn the ocean, therefore they needed it. So Lord Narayana, Lord Vishnu advised them, uh, of whom Lord Krishna is the incarnation. So Vishnu is the same thing as this, you know. So advise them, why don't you take the help of these demons, you know? Yeah, but then what will happen when the ambrosia comes? Don't worry, we'll see what happens at that time. So you seek their help. And so the devutas went to the demons, asuras, and had a proposition. That when the ambrosia is, it comes out from the ocean, we'll share half and half. Says, okay. So with that kind of a contract, they started churning. And all kinds of things came out. All kinds of uh, jewels came out from there. Fourteen jewels came out. The wish-fulfilling cow, Kamadhanu. Wish-fulfilling tree, Kalpataru. The flying horse, Uchayishravasa. Uh, the elephant, white elephant with two tusks, with, with four tusks. All these divine things came out from there. 
But before the ambrosia emerged from there, something else emerged, and there was poison. So poison emerged from there, and from the ocean. And it started flowing, it looked as though it was going to destroy the whole world, whole, whole universe would be destroyed. And this was not according to the schedule. Of course, there is a schedule of creation, sustenance and dissolution. There is, you know, this schedule to be dissolved, no doubt, but not at this time. And therefore all the devatas, including Creator Brahma, all of them were really scared what to do. And so they went around seeking help. They went to Lord Narayana, and they went to Brahma, the Creator. Look, your creation, what's going to happen? Do something about it. So I don't know, I can't do anything. Went to Lord Narayana, he's a preserver. He also, I don't know what to do with the poison. They went to Lord Shiva. And Lord Shiva is said to be very uh, innocent. Easy to, easy to deal with and easy to, uh, I guess, uh, work with, easy to apply with. And therefore, they say to Lord Shiva, this is what has happened. So, okay, I'll come there. He came. The poison was coming out. He took the poison in his palms and drank right there. Without even thinking what will happen to him. So the, 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 the poet describes. So why did you do that? Because you are so compassionate. Bhuvana bhaya bhanga vyasaninaha. Whenever you see that there is fear, or when there you see that any suffering in the world, you just cannot hold, I mean, you cannot control yourself. You become helpless. You run there and you have to release them from their fear and release them from their pain. And so when you found that, all the devutas and asuras were all uh, on a point of being destroyed, naturally your compassionate nature, they, it took hold of you and without even thinking, you drank the poison. Except that his consort, Goddess Parvati, she rushed and held his neck so that the poison does not go down and so the poison was held in the neck. And that is how he's called Nilakantha, uh, the one with the blue neck or the black neck. So this, this kind of, that, this black is a blemish. Nobody wants this kind of black marks on neck and on the body. That's a blemish. But is it a blemish for Lord Shiva? No. In fact, as far as Lord Shiva is concerned, it in fact enhances his beauty because this is a mark that in fact reflects his compassion. So he's a poison also. All kinds of, uh, all these kind of things are there which are very impure, at the same time even destructive, and still, do they affect Lord Shiva? No. In the same serene, with gentle smile, ever pure. In the midst of impurity, he's ever pure. In the midst of all these, so, all sattva, rajas, tamas, everything is there on the body of Lord Shiva. His Ganges is emerging from his matted locks, that is the purer than the purest sattva. He has a moon on his crown, and that is, uh, the moon is in fact, uh, all the time the rays of the moon are said to only shower the nectar. That's also pure and, 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 and cool. On the other hand, there is fire, you know, and is uh, coming out from his uh, forehead. So that represents rajas, and all these poison, etc. represents tamas, sattva, rajas, tamas. All these there are there on the body of Lord Shiva. Do they affect him in any way? Not at all. He remains ever pure, he remains ever serene, he remains ever of the nature of joy or happiness. So this is a very beautiful thing here, showing how the self remains unaffected regardless of how the personality is. So all these things, all these beings and things that are there on the body of Lord Shiva typically represent the personality of a person. 
in my personality, in my mind, that is sattva, rajasantama. Sometimes I display great purity and serenity. Sometimes I display all kinds of uh, nature of rajas. Sometimes tamas. All of these are there. They are in my personality. But the self, the person who is Lord Shiva, Shiva, is he affected? Never. So it says, nirdosham misamam brahma. Brahma, the self, is nirdosham. Meaning, it is ever free from any defect, ever free from any blemish, ever free from any impurity. All right. That means, it can be touched by impurity, it can be influenced by any impurity. Nothing can make it impure. All right, nothing can make it impure, but maybe it is impure by its own nature. There's no samam. It's ever the same. It's ever the same, meaning ever pure. So it's pure by nature, at the same time that is not being subject to, made impure. So that's the nature of the self, which is nirdosham, ever pure, ever free from any blemish, regardless of whatever blemishes are there in the personality. And therefore, what earlier was described, whether it's a brahmana or it's a cow or an elephant or a dog and all of these, all of these are descriptions of personality, where sattva, rajas and tamas, all these qualities are there. But the self, which is in fact presiding principle, which enlivens all of this, that is nirdosham, ever pure. And that is what they see. Whereas ordinary people, all they can see is the personality. And therefore, the way we judge everybody is by the personality. And therefore, for me, a dog is something to be despised, or an outcast, not a dog, I should not say dog, but an outcast, you know. So, it's, <laughs> because this is the Indian thing, you know, where the dog is looked upon as an impure thing. So, uh, if it comes and touches something, uh, then it's, it can't be used. So, uh, but not here in the United States and the West, because dog is, is, is closer than the closest, you know. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, this example of dog doesn't go well here, you know, anyway. <laughs> and this outcast also, they don't like. Our own children get upset with this kind of thing, you know. Uh, in fact, uh, one day I was talking to uh, teenagers and uh, thinking about color, I said, they, they indicate, they, they, uh, they symbolize the different dispositions of mind by color. I said, sattva is, is, is indicated by white and rajas is indicated by red and tamas is indicated by black. So why black? Why should black be associated with tamas, you know? So they, they, that child got offended. I said, that is, you know, so they thought that the Hindus are, are looking down upon black people or something like that, you know. Indians are looking down on black people. That's why black is associated with that which is tamas, darkness, ignorance. I said, well, that's not so. It's not black people. This is not the color of the skin. This is the color of the disposition of mind. The disposition of mind is indicated by this color. But as I said, you just never know who will get offended with what. It's very difficult also to, to, to judge sometimes as to what will offend a person. And of course one has to be very sensitive about it, but in spite of being any amount of sensitivity, still you never know everything. But then I say these are just examples that Lord Krishna gives. Of just, he might be seeing, you know, he sees, because elephants are there in the battlefield and then perhaps some dogs also may be there, who knows. And he, he always, he grew up with cows anyway. And so, they form, that, that's his example, that's his world. And therefore, these examples are given here. But nirdosham is some Brahman. The reason is that Brahman or the Self is ever nirdosham, ever pure. And nirdosham means nirgunam also. When it is free from dosha, it is also free from guna. Guna means virtue, dosha means vice. 
और गुणा ऑल्सो मीन सत्व रजस्तमस देर को गुणा वे गुणा मीन्स डिस्पोजिशन एंड सो सम पीपल हैव प्रॉब्लम वेन वी से दैट ब्रह्म और गॉड इज निर्गुणम दैट इज इज डिवाइड ऑफ ऑल द एट्रीब्यूट दिस अवर आई मीन दैट देवड वॉन्ट ब्रह्मन टू बी विथ ऑल वर्च्यूज एट्रीब्यूट But if it possesses all the virtues, then it will also possess vice, because uh, virtue is something that also is subject to change. When we say Brahman is devoid of all the vice, that means devoid of virtue also, because virtue is something that is opposed to vice. Brahman is opposed to nothing. If Brahman is virtuous, then it will not be where the vice is. If Brahman is only good, it will not be where the bad is. Brahman is the self. Lord Krishna says, "Samoham sarvabhuteshu." I am equal in all the beings. नमे द्वेश प्रिय हैूथ So by the very definition, truth must be that which is not affected by time, place, and conditions, and that means it must be equally abiding everywhere, without any kind of an exception, without any exception. And therefore, it is nirdosham and nirgunam. It is devoid of both virtue as well as vice. If above that, it's in all virtues and all vices, itself free from the influence of guna and dosha, and therefore. तस्माद ब्रह्मणी देश स्थित देर फॉर द एवर अवॉइड इन ब्रह्मन दे नो ब्रह्मन इज अर ओन सेल्फ एंड इज वाइस पीपल ऑलवेज अवॉइड इन ब्रह्मन रिगार्डलेस ऑफ हाउ देर कंडक्ट इज दैट मीन्स दैट इवन यू फाइंड दैट दे डो नॉट फॉलो सर्टन कोर्स ऑफ कंडक्ट दे वोट जनरली डू दैट वाइस पीपल वुड जनरली फॉलो द कोड ऑफ कंडक्ट बिकॉज Generally, people look up to them, and they are the leaders in that sense. That being the case, what they do also becomes important for people. But suppose you find they seem to violate certain code of conduct for something which is only known to them. They have a certain perception of the life, and that may be quite different from our perception. And so we have set certain code of conduct based on our perception. But he perceives life in a different way, and therefore he may feel that you know a given thing is better or proper in a given situation. Therefore. Even we find them functioning in a manner which is uh, not in keeping with the accepted code of conduct. Still, Brahmanistha ha, they still abide in Brahman, and therefore they are not subject to any kind of uh, sin or any kind of. Because otherwise, when you violate, that means you incur sin. They are, they are ever pure and they are ever also nirdosha. Nirdosha means they are ever free from blemish. Yehi vatayir jitasarga ha, yesham samyasthitamana ha. The cycle of birth and death is won over by these people, whose mind is always steady in Brahman. So those whose mind abides in Brahman, which is ever the same, they have conquered this cycle of birth and death. That means they become free or liberated right here, because Brahman and wherever, as we say, everything is Brahman, because the essence of everything is Brahman. Even what appears to be full of blemish, the essence of the self of it is free from blemish. All the blemishes that there may be, all the impurities that there are, all of them are only apparent. Mitya at the level of personality, but even the truth of what is impure is always pure. That's why we give the example of Lord Shiva, ever pure, and the truth of 
even though he seems to be surrounded by all impurities. In fact, he lives in a cremation ground, you know, which is also a, uh, which is also a place uh, which is very impure. And then also, uh, he is accompanied by what? He accompanied by ghosts and goblins, who are very impure. And they were surrounded by all kinds of impurities. Who is ever pure? Similarly also, surrounded by any kind of thoughts, any kind of behavior, any kind of personality, Atma, the Self, is ever pure. And therefore, they always abide in this Self, Brahman, which is Self, which is ever pure. <coughs> and when they encounter different kinds of situations, how is the response? That is being said in the 20th verse. Na prahushyet priyam prapya Na prahushyet priyam prapya No dvijet prapya chapriyam No dvijet prapya chapriyam Sthira buddhira sammudha Sthira buddhira sammudha Brahma vid Brahma nishthikaha Brahma vid Brahma nishthikaha Brahmavit, the one who knows Brahman, meaning Brahman is a self. Brahman is Thitaha, who is established in Brahman. Established in Brahman is possible only when he knows Brahman is a very self, understand? Because one can be established or abide only in one's own self. And when Brahman is known as a self, then those who abide in Brahman as their own self. Asamudaha, whose knowledge is firm. Which means that I am Brahman, that everything is Brahman, that knowledge is free from any doubts, any kind of an errors or any kind of habitual errors. That means one who's in, from whom all the obstacles in knowledge have been removed and therefore those who firmly abide in the knowledge. That's called Asammudaha. Sammoha means delusion. Asammudaha, one is free from delusion, one is free from ignorance and one is free from any doubts and errors. This is the internal condition, which of course we don't have an access, we don't know whether this is there or not. But this internal condition, meaning that this avoidance of knowledge, how does it manifest itself in terms of their responses to the situation? The first line tells us that. Na prahrushet priyam prapya, no dvijet prapya chapriyam. Would not rejoice over gaining that which is desirable, would not resent the gaining that which is undesirable. Free from rejoicing as well as resentment. Priyam prapya, gaining that which is desirable. Na prahushet, does not rejoice, is not elated. A priyam prapya, obtaining or being confronted with that which is un- unpleasant or undesirable. No udvijet, who does not react with udvega, does not react with resentment, who does not get perturbed. This is this kind of discussion we find in Bhagavad Gita again and again. And very often this kind of description creates in our mind the idea that this person has become insensitive. It looks like he is without feelings. He is without emotions. He is insensitive. He has become like a stone, you know, that doesn't, doesn't respond to, doesn't show any kind of a feeling at all. There's something desirable has happened, something, you know, something desirable has happened. Something pleasant has happened and still you don't see any, any sign of rejoicing. And something very painful is happening, something undesirable is happening, 
you don't see any sign of uh, any sign of resentment so what is he is he a person who doesn't feel anything either we can say that or we can say that he feels something over and above this that what an ordinary person looks upon as desirable and undesirable see the idea of desirable and undesirable are always again are based on merely my judgment of what is the name and form see all the kind of nomenclature that we give or all the kind of conclusions that we draw that a given thing is desirable something is undesirable this is good something is bad understand that all of these are at the level of name and form at the level of what we call the the the, uh, the costume at the level of the wrapper at the level of just the outer appearance they don't relate to that they appreciate that that means the wise person also appreciates the difference of obtaining in the names and forms and it's not that he is insensitive to that but is also sensitive to the fact that in what is called unpleasant also it is the same brahman which comes in the guise of unpleasant a same brahman or self that comes in the guise of what is pleasant therefore in what is generally branded as pleasant and unpleasant or desirable and desirable he does not fail to appreciate brahman does not fail to appreciate asti bhati priyam does not fail to appreciate his own self and that's the reason why he is free from reaction so understand that harsha and shoka rejoicing elation also is a reaction and depression also is a reaction whereas cheerfulness or happiness is not react joy ananda is not reaction and so an ordinary person gets sort of distracted from himself in both the conditions when he is confronted with something which is called pleasant then also he forgets himself so when i get elated when something desirable happens i forget myself when i get depressed then also i forget myself so both elation and depression are reactions which deviate my mind from myself at that time i am not abiding myself i am being controlled by things other than myself and the general rule is that the one who gets elated on account of something desirable will is likely to be depressed by on account of something that is not desirable but his happiness does not come from anything else his happiness comes from his own self atmaneva atmanatushtah and therefore regardless of how the situation is he does not in any way become deviated from the self which always ananda which is fullness in short he ever abides in fullness and this was also described in second chapter where lord krishna compared this wise person with ocean is to ocean always abides in fullness and something desirable means what as far as ocean is concerned a few rivers coming and bringing water that's desirable all the rivers don't bring water undesirable but ocean does not depend upon the rivers for its fullness fullness is its nature and fullness is that which is not subject to increase or decrease similarly also a situation cannot increase the ananda that is nor can it take away the ananda that is and that's the reason why he always remains unperturbed always remains composed not that he is is, is insensitive we can always see whether a person is insensitive or a person is composed is uh, free from influence by the condition <coughs> again this is some that is how we can see the wisdom reflects itself in this manner 
in the day-to-day situations. The wisdom enables a person to maintain that balance or composure of the mind. And therefore one sees beyond that. It's all right, pleasant, it's all right. But that is also Brahman. Unpleasant also is Brahman. As I said, does not fail to appreciate in the pleasant and unpleasant the same Brahman, same self. <coughs> same beauty, let us put it this way. He thinks that what normally a person calls unpleasant also has its own beauty. And what somebody calls pleasant also has its own beauty. This is his own place, its own beauty, its own usefulness, its own contribution. So even a sadhaka or a seeker also, so as far as the seeker is concerned, you try to do this. What he does spontaneously is what becomes for a seeker to be done something deliberately. So thus when I am confronted with something unpleasant or painful, how should I react to it? With resentment? With fear? With disapproval? It says, no, everything is equally welcome. That what is unpleasant also has a role to play. Has its own beauty or has its own, own role to play. In fact, sometimes pain or unpleasantness may have more to contribute with reference to my growth. Now, all this pos- becomes possible for a person whose whose commitment is to self-growth or spiritual growth. For that person it becomes possible to deal with the pain also, in as much as pain also is looked upon as a means for me to learn something and grow. Unpleasant thing also has come to teach me something. The pleasant things come to give me uh, encouragement. So things that are pleasant come to me to encourage me, so that I don't become disheartened. And unpleasant things come to me or painful things come to me to help me grow. And thus, even a sadhak or seeker also will look upon both the kinds of situations and therefore not react. Not react with elation, knowing fully well, this is the grace of God. Thank you, God. I'm happy about it, but not elated. And I'm not depressed. I know the unpleasant pain also you have given me, unpleasant also you have given me. You know why it is coming. I may not understand all the time why things are happening the way I give benefit of doubt to him. You have given me. So he's a bhakta also. He's a devotee also. And therefore, what is important to him is not what, what comes to him, but where it comes from. For a devotee, what is important is the source. In love also always, what is important is not what, is, what comes to you, what is given to you, where it, is, it comes from. And therefore, on your birthday or on an occasion like that, when somebody brings a gift, it is not what the gift is that is important, but who gives and how it is given. So when you see that it's given with love, whatever it is, it's, it's, it's something that conveys a love, that is important. Similarly also, he sees that, a bhakta or a devotee sees. So that's called a devotee who always communicates or interacts with God. And he, he sees everything that is done by God. So the pain, or undesirable, unpleasant thing also coming from Lord. And what comes from him must have some purpose. It must be doing something good to me, which I do not know. I give him the benefit of doubt. It is therefore, I don't become resentful. I don't become angry. Or I don't become uh, helpless. Because when undesirable, painful things come, either we are helpless because I can't do anything. Or I, I, I retaliate. Or I become angry. Which doesn't help anyway. None of these things change the situation anyway. None of these things can make it pleasant anyway. And therefore, one can look upon this, one can welcome this. Welcome means 
not reject them, not be resentful to them, and look upon them as that which is created by God for a purpose best known to him, and I will try to understand what the purpose is. But that I can understand provided I have a non-reacting mind. So, as far as the wise person is concerned, he is non-reacting because he finds everything in order. For a seeker, he attempts to be non-reacting to try to see the order. The wise man sees the order and a seeker is one who attempts to see the order, who gives the benefit of doubt that there must be an order. <coughs> so from time to time, Lord Krishna makes it a point to describe these characteristics or traits of the wise person so that the seekers can get their lessons from them. In the next verse tells us how he achieved that state when he abides in what we call the uh, imperishable happiness. The verse 21 says that process. Vindatyatmani yatsukham Vindatyatmani yatsukham Sabrahma yoga yuktatma Sabrahma yoga yuktatma Sukhamakshaya mashnute Sukhamakshaya mashnute Mahyas parsheshu asaktatma Asaktatma, one whose mind is unattached Bahyas parsheshu to external sense objects. Bahya, external. Sparsha, sparsha means that which is touched, which is contacted. In this case, it means sense object. Bahyas parsheshu to the external sense objects. They are called sparsha. Objects are called sparsha because we contact them with our sense organs. Like the sounds are contacted or touched by the sense organ of hearing. So therefore, it is Touch means sparsha. Therefore, the objects are called sparsha because we touch them, contact them with our sense organs. And bhāhya means external. Bhāhya, sparsheshu, is external or external objects of senses. Asaktātmā, one whose mind is not attached to them. Vindati ātmani yatsukham. Yatsukham, ātmani yatsukham. That fullness which is in oneself, which is in the self, Vindati, he gains. So Lord Krishna here describes the process of how to gain that happiness which is within one's own self. How to own up that happiness of fullness which is one's own self. Lord Krishna says, to the extent that one's mind becomes detached from the attraction or fascination for external pleasures, to that extent, one discovers the happiness that lies within oneself. Atma is the nature of happiness. But I am not able to experience or enjoy that happiness because my mind is all the time running around in the external objects. So my mind is engaged in external objects. As long as the mind is directed towards objects, so long it is not able to get the benefit of the happiness which is a very subject. So Lord Krishna says that in order to discover the happiness which is in one's own self, it is necessary that the mind is made 
introvert or abide in oneself and that is possible that happens when we make our mind detached that is we make our mind free from the attachments and aversions which a mind has for the external objects attachments and aversions can only be for something other than me and as we have been discussing that attachment and aversion both of them are the products of not understanding things Sometimes because of my fancy I look upon something as a source of happiness and I am attached to that. Because of my fancy I look upon something else as a threat to my security, I have an aversion for that. So whether a thing is a source of happiness or unhappiness is purely my subjective view. There is no objectivity in there because it is, if this object is a source of happiness, it should give happiness to everybody, which is not so. It is I who looks upon a given object as a source of happiness. Somebody else looks upon it as a source of unhappiness. So somebody was talking when we were returning, you know, and this flea market is going on. See Swamiji, how things are there, how many people are happy to get rid of things, and other people are equally happy to get them. Both are happy. That's what we find. That something that gives me a great pleasure can also give a tremendous displeasure to someone else. And this is very true with the food, at least we can see on our own dining hall, you know. So when different kinds of food are cooked, is cooked, we can see the reaction that different people have towards that. Particularly Easterners and Westerners, you know, what kind of reactions they have. And so, when the, there is no salt and there is nothing in the food, so, oh, this suits the Western palate, you know, whatever, it's a bland food, let us say. And then Eastern palate, it would not have any kind of effect. And when it is spicy and stuff like that, and this one, and then this one is enjoying, the Western palate cannot appreciate, cannot enjoy that. How one thing alone can cause a lot of, it, you can bring out tears from somebody's eyes because it is hot. It tears of pain. In the eyes of someone else, tears of joy. The very same thing. It's amazing. And therefore, whether something is a source of happiness or unhappiness is purely one's personal viewpoint. And so the attachments and aversions that I have are because of my own personal viewpoints, fences about I have fences I have about things and therefore make my mind free from these fences, free from this superimposition. And so we have been saying how both Raga and Dvesha are products of Aviveka non-discrimination, not understanding things properly. By Viveka, by discrimination, we make our mind free from attachments and aversions. That's a healthy process. And to the extent that the mind becomes free from attachment and aversion, this is how Vedantins want to control the mind. That what drives the mind away is because mind has some concern. Mind has certain needs and therefore it runs to where it finds that needs being fulfilled. Except mind does not understand that the needs that it has cannot be fulfilled from something outside. They can be fulfilled only from the self. Mind doesn't understand. So you have to make the mind understand that you think that that is a source of happiness. But where is the happiness there? Where is security? So make the mind understand the true nature of things, for what they are, not create unnecessary resentment also, for what they are. Whatever usefulness the objects have, that also we should appreciate. Thus we should be objective, that it's not that the objects of the world are source of unhappiness also. Both of these are generally imposed, superimposed by me, and therefore I become objective. As I become objective, to the extent that I am objective, to that extent my mind becomes free from this attachment, aversion, to that, to that extent, it becomes self-abiding and to that extent, it can discover the happiness which is the nature of the self. That's what Lord Krishna says, 
बाह्यस्पर्शेशु असक्तात्मा विंदति आत्मनि यत्सुखम सो वन हु इज बिकम फ्री और टू द एक्सटेंड दैट वन बिकम्स फ्री फ्रॉम द अटैचमेंट एंड एवर्जन फॉर द एक्सटर्नल ऑब्जेक्ट टू दैट एक्सटेंड वन डिस्कवर्स हैप्पीनेस व्हिच इज विद इन वन्स ओन सेल्फ दैट्स द फर्स्ट स्टेप व्हाट्स द सेकंड स्टेप द सेकंड लाइन सेज सब ब्रह्मयोग युक्त आत्मा सुखमक्षयमश्नुदे सो दिस पर्सन who now has a mind that is introvert introvert means abiding in the self only because it is free from those opposite pulls of likes and dislikes and therefore the mind remains tranquil sah brahma yoga yukta atma he becomes brahma yoga yukta atma he becomes one end of it brahma yoga brahma yoga means joining with brahman in course of time he becomes one who gain who joins with brahman who abides in brahman who discovers brahman as his own self so first step is that the mind becomes abiding in the self and second step is that the mind discovers itself to be ananda to be brahman sab brahma yoga yukta atma so when ignorance also is gone all the obstacles are gone sukham akshayam asnude he gains akshayam sukham he gains what we call imperishable happiness inexhaustible happiness which is the nature of the self that is brahman so first step to the extent that the mind becomes free from the external likes and dislikes to that extent mind becomes tranquil to that extent the mind becomes abiding in the self to that extent it discovers a happiness which is the own self and in course of time that mind gains the knowledge of self and discovers that infinite happiness which is the nature of the self and which is what these wise people have discovered and that that is the reason why they are always happy under whatever conditions so sab brahma yoga yukta atma sukham akshayam asnudai what does in this verse is while describing the wise people the sanyasi which sanyasi vidvat sanyasi the one who is renunciated by virtue of knowledge not by virtue of vows not by virtue not merely by virtue of vows or lifestyle but one who is renunciated by virtue of knowledge akshayam sukham asnudai he gains the sukham of the happiness akshayam kshayam means that is subject to exhaustion inexhaustible imperishable that means that unending eternal happiness he attains because that is his nature so the process of really becoming happy people ask why what does bhagavad gita teach bhagavad gita teaches us how to become happy that's all because we say it teaches about brahman and stuff like that people may not be interested nobody is interested in brahman and nobody is even interested in god nobody is interested in anything the only thing that a person is interested in is in happiness or freedom So when a, a newcomer asks me or asks you, what is that Bhagavad Gita teaches? Simple answer will be Bhagavad Gita teaches us how to be happy. This is very classical verse that tells us how to become happy. Person thinks that I'll be happy if I get what all I want in the world, because there's a conclusion that happiness that I'm seeking is out there in the objects. Lord Krishna says, no, it is not where you think it is. and it is its own self unfortunately i have concluded that i am an unhappy being that's why i am seeking happiness out there lord krishna says that analyze that conclusion that conclusion about you also is not right and the conclusion about the world also is not right <coughs> and thus merely by becoming free from this notions or the delusions about the self and the world we become happy without any process theoretically you need not do anything to be happy All that I need to do is to rid my mind of these delusions. 
And the mind can be made rid of delusions merely by seeing, merely by Viveka discrimination. All these yoga becomes necessary because mind is not ready to discriminate. It's not yet become objective, it is too emotional, that means it is too impulsive. Therefore it cannot command that kind of an objectivity. If one has an objective mind, this is enough, that I, I examine the various conclusions I have in light of what the scriptures teach, and the conclusions drop, mind becomes steady, abiding, tranquil, and discovers happiness which it has been seeking. So Lord Krishna teaches us the art of becoming happy. That is uh, simply what Bhagavad Gita teaches. Happy person is free from sadness. So you can say it is freedom from sadness. It is not merely freedom from sadness, not merely freedom from unhappiness, but positively gaining happiness. It is not merely absence of unhappiness, but it is positive happiness. Except that happiness is not something to be created or achieved, unhappiness is blocking it, that's all. When the block is removed, what is there becomes evident, becomes manifest. Okay. Om Purnamadav Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachyade Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyade Om Shanti 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 Shankaram Shankaracharyam Keshavam Badarayanam Sutra Bhashyakrutau Vande Bhagavantau Punapunaha Ishvaro Gururatmedi Murti Bheda Vibhagine Vyoma Vadvyapta Dehaya Dakshina Murtaye Namaham Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Shri 